this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al. This week we'll be discussing food trends and diet fads. And later I'll be talking to Cornelia Parker about making art out of cliché. Do you eat a lot of purple food? Loads. <laughs> so, Grace, how are you? Hi, Al. I'm fine, thanks. You're um, wearing a very nice pair of sunglasses. I am. Not, not essential in, in this dark studio, but I have just bought them and I'm very excited about them from Qbits in Borough Market. For the benefit of our listeners who can't see Grizz, I don't know what to say. Uh, <laughs> they're orange. They're orange and, um, yeah, they... Strikingly cool. Strikingly cool. I'm not yeah. on commission from Qubits, but Qubits, if but you're you listening, I'd quite like to be. <laughs> well, no one else has worn sunglasses during a recording, so this is... It's a first for yeah. everything else and probably for the FT. Al, how about you? What have you been doing? I had dinner with Steven Soderbergh on the day of an important football game. Um, <laughs> Steven Soderbergh is you know, movie director, did Out of Sight and Aaron Brockovich and the Oceans films. Um, Except for the recent Oceans film, which apparently is no good. I mean, was he nice? Yeah, he was the coolest guy. I think we're <laughs> going to go on holiday together. Um, he. Uh, what was the occasion for your dinner? It was a lavish dinner at the Orma restaurant in the Flemings Hotel in Mayfair, and it was a five five tasting courses of things like duck breast and foie gras. But the main point of it was Steven Soderbergh has discovered, is probably the wrong word, but he's has kind of discovered the Bolivian national spirit, which is um, Singani, which is not really exported outside of Bolivia. And it's, it's... Well, they presumably lots of Bolivians had already discovered it. Well, they had discovered it before the great movie director um, landed <laughs> Sweet there. Sweet for his. Well, he was, he was directing a movie, his movie about Che Guevara, and he got hooked on Singani while he was there and now he has, he has his own label called Singani um, 63 and he's trying to sell it around the world and interestingly I mean it's it's a very good drink it's um, like there's a been of, a lot of product placement in this podcast already <laughs> I'm on commission from Steven Soderbergh um, but interestingly it's not just mm. that it's a good drink that it's like maybe a mellower grappa they don't like being compared to anything like that mm-hmm. because even though it's classified as technically a brandy Soderbergh and his crew are lobbying the Bolivian and US governments to invent an entirely new category for this. So you could have a vodka, a whiskey, a gin, or a singani. So mm. it's kind of a big deal. It's like you know inventing or discovering a new type of cat or um, <laughs> something. You know, it's like it's, it's a new thing. And did um, it taste good? Well, it came in sort of a variety of cocktails. I, I tried it neat as well. Um, I was plastered by the end of dinner. I mean, it's, yeah, it tasted effective. very nice. It's effective. No, but it's, it's sort of quite quite sort of mellow, and it went very well in a, in a sort of Moscow mule, in a Bloody Mary, and yeah, I thought it was great. Cool. Worth missing the football. And you've had quite a foodie week, I hear, which is quite apt for this episode of the podcast. Indeed, I went to Honey & Co's book launch. It's their third book launch. Obviously, Honey & Co are, are great columnists. That was nice. Yeah, I was a brigadier. I've been, I've been everywhere. I've got fat this week. You've been eating a lot ever. this week. <laughs> yeah. Well, which is good for today mm-hmm. because we are discussing food and specifically food trends and diet fads with Tim Haywood, the FT critic and also winner recently of the, if I can just find it, the Restaurant Writing Award at the Guild 
of food writers, which he was already a big deal, but that makes him an even bigger deal. A seriously big deal. Yeah, and he's I, about to come on the podcast. Indeed. Tim, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Today we're talking about food trends mm-hmm. and diet fads. So let's start with food trends. You know, last year we had fermented food, kombucha, purple food. I gather was a food trend. Um, uh, matcha, <laughs> plant-based diets, um, spirulina. What do we have this year? This comes up so much, and it's it's such a complicated world, isn't it? I mean, I mean, the, the fermented stuff is still very much in. You can't move for ferments at the moment. But people actually want food trends to move faster. Why? Uh, I, I think it's part, it's part of the way the industry operates. I'm constantly asked by, by sort of trend-spotting companies to come in and talk about, about things like this. And they've worked out that the best people who have their finger on the pulse of trends are usually journalists, because they're really good at spotting opinions and that's that kind of thing. And we or, work, or inventing them. Or inve- well, you know, we, we've always worked on that great journalistic principle that two is a coincidence and three is a trend, and that's yeah. absolutely fine. So you're desperately trying to find three things to thread together in one place. Then you go and report it to the trend agency. Then the trend agency goes out and releases it back to the newspapers. The purple thing was insane. I actually, <laughs> purple I actually asparagus. To, I was working at a trend agency where the purple thing came up three years ago, and it was because it was something to do with the fact that it was one of the colours of the suffragettes, and it was going to be terribly fashionable across everything. And all of the ah, colour swatch stuff... Feminist broccoli. Fe- well, I, it's obviously it's feminist broccoli, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, it that's entirely it. It's, it's, it's quite bonkers. But, I mean, some, some things really are sticking. A really weird thing would be to think about ourselves in 10 years' time and look back and say which trends will actually be still valid. Well, that's the thing. Some of them feel so transitory and kind of silly and ridiculous and almost written about by journalists like Al. And then well, sort well, of, me too. Do, they, do they filter down into real life? I don't know. I don't know how they would ever filter out into real consumption. Well, a less silly one is being a vegan. That's filtered more. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really controversial area, isn't it? I mean, Veganuary. V- Unbelievable. The, I received about a thousand emails yes, with and, the subject. Yes, and, and it was probably Vigenuary. the single biggest societal change in the direction of vegetarianism that we'd had in this country since we even started talking about it back in the 1920s and 30s. But is this a fad or is it? It's a, a total fad. The idea of even being vegan, 99% of the people who actually went out and did it or wrote about it, if you told them they'd have to change the material their shoes were made out of, they'd have thought you were mad. I mean, <laughs> I saw so you were saying they did it for January and well, they, they, they did it for January. it's they're, not they're, a life change. There have been slight changes in the way that people consume stuff. I saw a text today from somebody who said that he was announcing the fact that he'd, uh, he'd stopped being a flexitarian and was re-embracing being an omnivore. <laughs> and I thought, I can't even begin to get my head around what that must have meant. But it's but still some... there, isn't it? I mean, there are s- countless stalls in places like Borough Market where these vegan only. It does seem to be. I'm invited to vegan restaurants the entire time. Certainly at the height of the vegan thing, I was wandering around Soho and pretty much every restaurant had a board outside talking about its vegan options. Yeah, you get a vegan Sunday roast, which you is, must be the can. most joyless. And, and it, it completely peters out. Apparently Sainsbury's is about to launch their bleeding beetroot burger, which will be a vegetarian mm. burger that actually yeah. has <laughs> blood and juice-like material that comes out of it. But this, so this is part of a trend towards just generally better health, right? That we're becoming more health conscious. Is that right? I don't know if it's health. It, it's intriguing to me. I think that the trends that really stick, when you give them that sort of 10-year test, are actually the ones that are hugely functional. So the one that was really noticeable to me, I think, over the last couple of years has been the fact that carbs are side dishes. I mean, when I was first professionally cooking, a meal was a 
a protein, a starch, and one or two veg, and your, your sauce. Mm. Now, everywhere you go, you get your protein up front, be that a vegetable protein or a meat or a fish protein, that's absolutely fine, but the carbs are right off the board. That's because the middle-class restaurant-going public are largely eschewing carbs. We have these de facto low-carb diets. It's madness, isn't it? No, it's keeping us all thin, and that's great. You know, you, 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 you low-carb and you, you, you lose weight. I mean, that's, that's fine. It's not particularly healthy or good for you. But well, isn't it was everyone a, just going around feeling really hangry? <laughs> no, I think you get used to it. <laughs> Maybe you do. I think there's a degree of hanger, yes, but although, you know, you probably put it all down to Brexit in the end. That's what I'm really angry about. <laughs> so, are there any of these food trends that you uh, think are fun and exciting? I think, to me, the one that is always going to be there, boiling away, is a movement further and further and further towards a middle ground of proper, decent quality eating in the UK. I mean, if you want to talk about real trends in the industry, it's the absolute crush on money and people going to restaurants and staff, the ability to find staff mm. over the last six months has been absolutely appalling. And restaurants are bleeding out. Mm -hmm. And they're dying in droves. There's this thing whereby chain restaurants, which have been such an exciting thing to, for investors to put money into over the last few years, they have a business model that's kind of zero sum. If you're going to reduce the price, and if you're going to make things more populist, you, you do have to reduce qualities in, in certain places. And everything's run by a spreadsheet, and that's absolutely fine. But they've screwed that spreadsheet down over the last few months right the way to the very, very, very bare bones. And they literally can't take the pressure that a sudden drop in people's disposable income. Brexit specifically. I wouldn't say it specifically because of Brexit. It's because we're going into a recession. And that means that less people want to go. And actually, the ones that really have to close down fastest are the ones with the, less, the least flexibility. So we're talking about places like Pizza Express or sort of... Well, those, Middle those market, the one, family friendly. Those are the ones that are being hit hard by this. And they have this kind of zero-sum model where, okay, they'll they'll keep going. But to, in order to keep going, they've literally got to you know reduce the size of their pizzas by a quarter of an inch or, or put a bit less topping on us or buy cheaper tomatoes. Or something. Everybody has to do that because the, the numbers are so tight. The weird situation we find ourselves in at the moment is, oddly, it's the independents that are holding it together a little bit longer. Because actually they've been running on sweat equity and love and sort of starry-eyed insanity. So and a actually, restaurant like Sabor that you reviewed recently, do you think that has a bright future? I think that's got a bright future because this is in central London. It's, uh, it's cracking food and that will do well. But if, you know, recently I was in Bristol. You know, they've had th two polpos closed down. And actually, the small independents, which are now opening three days a week because they can't afford to mm. open for six, but they're doing okay because the kids who set them up are putting in more sweat equity, digging deeper into their pockets and into their savings. And they're surviving longer. They're hanging on a little longer. But it's still really, really tough going. Okay. So that's almost a trend. <laughs> We've gone off piece no, no, a little so, bit. Okay. So what, so what that leads into for me is, is the notion that we are really, really rapidly falling out of love with the high-end places. You mean the triple Michelin stars? I think Michelin stars are so irrelevant and okay. always have felt so. But I think the, the huge backlash against 50 Best, for example, this year, mm -hmm. which has got no female, one female chef on it, I think. It's, it's an no, embarrassing that they even have that award for the best female chef and she yes, doesn't, yes. they don't even put her in the top 50. Be, but, but, it's because, but isn't this because fine dining is kind of just generally seen as a bit passe and a bit boring and people want fun experiences well, you, and that you extends see, to restaurants? I, I, think, I think you're immensely perceptive. I think if you're saying that as a punter, I think that's absolutely bang on. That is what punters I'm are saying. I'm saying as a millennial consumer. <laughs> well, that, that's what we would call a punter. But yeah. <laughs> no, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think the restaurant world, the restaurant media, is not grasping. It's still banging on about Michelin-starred chefs. And people like you, who go out and keep everybody in business, honestly couldn't give the tiniest toss. <laughs> 
my parents used to bang on about the fact that you know it was lovely to go abroad because they have these tiny little restaurants in every small village and you know the checkered tablecloth and the little zinc and yeah 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 whatever we don't have anything like that in England and actually we got the gastro pub and weirdly although they're they're out of date and tired in places and some of them are very cynical and grim actually in most places in the UK you don't have to really spit very far before you hit somewhere where you can get a decent steak and chips, a pretty standard menu of good English standard dishes, and it's good. And all these top chefs opening pubs. Right? Yes. A few years ago, the, the guy who ran the local Porsche dealership and yeah. wanted to take his girlfriend out was you know want to go to a restaurant where they had a trolley and somebody set fire to your dessert. <laughs> and that would be the distinction about a decent restaurant. You know, to me, that sounds like Faulty Towers or something. <laughs> well, no, precisely, because, it, because it's, the, it's the pre-millennial yeah. attitude to those yeah. things. Actually, I think we've had MasterChef for so long now that people have believed that 14-course degustation menu and, and food piled very high with many, many ingredients is the definition of a good place to take your girlfriend. And, and, and that's what's been keeping those things going. But actually, that's just dying. It's bleeding out. And also, like, street food and bowl food. I mean, apparently, Meghan and Harry at the royal wedding had bowl food, which was a new concept to lots of readers. But if they're not doing fine dining, I don't know I who else is. <laughs> I think it's probably a new concept to Tatler readers, which was the best, <laughs> the best bit of it. And that, was, that actually caused an enormous amount of, of amusement amongst the clickerati. Just the, the, the thought that the bowl food, how exciting. Yeah, it's <laughs> in a bowl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Tim, do you think that with the rise of Instagram in the last three or four years, that food served in restaurants particularly looks different? Gosh, that's intriguing. I think we've gone through a, a period when the idea of, of you know, eating with the eyes and what's on the plate has become more part of the general approach to the way we look at food. I don't think Instagram is necessarily the thing that's driven it. If you look at the way that uh, photography and food books has changed, I mean, I'm, I'm mm. uh, Elizabeth David hated photography because photography was so bad it would never make her food look as delicious as she could describe it. Later on, you have people like Robert Carrier doing those fantastic cards, recipe cards, and the photography is still pretty bad, but it's but it's getting better. And then you get photographers like Robert Fresson, for example, who worked for Life magazine at one point, and uh, I think Gourmet in the States, and he went out for a year around France with a 10-8 camera and a crew of five, taking beautiful, some of the most sumptuous photography ever of food. And you look at it now, and it's the, the apotheosis of perfectly controlled and incredibly delicious. I think what Instagram has taken us through is, is, is it makes it a lot easier for everybody to do the over-the-top shot. Mm. But the over-the-top shot is, has, has become absolutely the complete standard for everything we do. And I think, yeah. I think chefs are aware of that. Yeah, it's quite almost scientific. You're sort of getting the absolute kind of bird's-eye view. Yeah. And it's like I mean, a specimen. We, we print quite a lot of photos like that in the magazine because there are restrictions on showing pictures of ordinary customers in case they're having an affair. Yes, oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but but I, I think I mean, you guys are you guys are really pushing the envelope. I think it's I think it's really interesting. So we did a story a while back on, on ice cream. Yeah. And the pictures that were in that were brilliant. We got some really interesting comments, but they were also polarizing. Because I had some people say that those pictures, you know, they were really interesting, but it was ice cream, and you can, yeah, yeah, and that I like the disruption in that. And mm. I'm seeing, I'm now, I'm now seeing that happen in fashion. I actually looked at that and I thought, actually, that is the O comely of food photography. It's slightly disruptive. I'm not even I can't look at it and go, mm, yum, I want to eat that. It's kind of and more complicated. Than it that. is more complicated, and we've got to, we have to keep it alive. It has to be a live conversation. We have to keep thinking all the time because we will get to a stage where people will look at it and not be actually interested enough to follow in. Okay, so better mid-market independent restaurants yeah. in Britain. Mm-hmm. That that's a good thing. Yes. Which trends do you think are 
ridiculous or bad at the moment. Putting that sort of that ten year rule on it again, something's become sort of ipso facto absurd. So though I love with all my heart fire cooking, the fact that every single cool chef in London has rebuilt his dining room. So at one end of it he's got a grate and a fireplace and a load of live fire going on. That's tremendous. But that can't still be tremendous in three years' time. It's not tremendous if you go to Kiln in um, Soho in 30-degree heat and there's a fire about two yards it's, away from you. It's been, regarded, it's, been, it's been called the best restaurant we have in the UK at the moment. It's, it's it is exciting. It is interesting. I gave it a pretty mediocre review I remember. at one point, um, which a lot of people have not agreed with. It's not to my taste because of its massive level of authenticity, mm. which is actually not necessarily appropriate to the environment it's in. I think I disagree with lots of people. On lots well, of I, things think, I thought I'm the food was to. great, but um, <laughs> I did think it was warm in there. Very, very yeah. hot. Yeah. So, so, I mean, things like that, you have to look at them and think, where on earth is that going to go? Far more interesting question at the moment within the industry is we're actually looking at something like really big movements like organics or local eating that are almost like, a, like part of your millennial build, your, your, your structure. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're looking at those and they've kind of teetered through their own absurdity. The idea of eating, you know, within 25 metres of the front door of the restaurant and that kind of stuff has so fallen over because people can't sustain that as a, as a business model and actually it isn't really terribly relevant. And does that really mean we can't have salmon anymore because they don't grow it inside the M25? Well, also people who are obsessed with it all live with inside the M25, so it's <laughs> kind of ridiculous. That Precisely. You, can't... And, yeah. you know, but they're growing leeks and things like in disused underground stations and stuff. Which, well, is, which is marvellous for 12 yeah. of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's move on to um, fad diets. Just look back over the past sort of forty years or so, we've had we've had the grapefruit diet and the cookie diet, the Sleeping Beauty diet, in which you just would sedate yourself for several days and lose weight by being asleep, um, <laughs> and it goes on and on with you know the low sugar Atkins, the Ducan diet, gluten free, alkaline, paleo. Mm. All of these strike me as be, in various different ways as being dangerous and stupid. Do you agree with that? And probably agree. sexist as well. I'd agree with that, but then I'm a, I'm a fairly porky bloke. So that's <laughs> have you ever tried any Have either of, these of you diets? ever done them? I'm interested to know. Um, I Atkins never have. <laughs> no, I've never done one. Um, I've low-carbed for a short period of time, and it's very effective. It's not too agonising. When you're my kind of size, and somebody says, OK, you've got to have you know, no toast for breakfast. In fact, skip breakfast altogether, but you can have a socking great steak for lunch and another one for dinner. It's no real great loss to humanity, and you find that you lose weight, which is one of the reasons that this whole thing of reducing the number of carbs in the general restaurant mm. has, has, has changed so much. So why do you think we have these fad diets? <sighs> it's a fascinating notion. I think so much of it is about control. And without wishing to get sort of too deep into the psychotherapeutic, I think everything that, that motivates us is an attempt to try and get control over the uncontrollable. It's sort of monkish restrictive. Just that, plus, you know, the feeling that you can do something to control your health and your inevitable death. <laughs> <laughs> it's completely illogical as well, well of course isn't it? it is. If you I mean, just keep cutting things out, yes, it, yes. inevitably it's unhealthy, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is inevitably unhealthy and it's not going to stave off your own doom, you know, which is probably going to happen through some <laughs> other method probably because you've made yourself live longer. And, you know, you always get this fantastic equation about, you know, every time you don't eat a plate of potatoes, your life increases by another two days or whatever it might be. But that's two days in which you're peeing into a bag and, you know, and the nurse be is, you know, we can't afford to get any over here anymore, but uh, there's a nurse wiping your bottom. You can have those days. I don't mind it. I'll have the chips right now and uh, and take them off the end if that's all right. Okay. You know, if you could promise me the days when I was maybe, you know, 
23 and living in Florence. That would be great. I mean, I'll have those Keep days. Those <laughs> Stick those on the end. And if I can go back to them, I will give yeah. up potatoes right here, right now. But no, otherwise forget it. Chris, have you tried any of these diets? I've never really done any of these the alkaline diets. Alkaline no. diet, maybe? Or the, no. Um, Oprah Winfrey's liquid diet? If you just all too complicated, yeah. no, see, I can't we, be bothered if, with if it. If we were proper, like, health vloggers and bloggers here, what we'd now do is spend the next 20 minutes circling, oh, but of course you don't need to. You, oh, darling, you're so thin. <laughs> oh, look at you, all cheekbones. And it goes on for hours and hours and hours. Well, it's no. just so boring, isn't it? I mean, I hate talking to people about their diets. I, you know, it happens a lot, particularly when you're a woman, and it is just boring. Just don't want to know what other people are eating. But the health, the health <laughs> boom that we've just seen, I mean, every single one of those bizarre bone broth non-food books that were basically by people who didn't like eating and didn't want to eat for people who didn't like eating and didn't want well, to that's eat. that's the thing. There's something so sad and kind of restrictive and it comes from a place of dysfunctional eating. And very I think that's, much, the, that's the worrying yeah. thing. And, and yet it's been commercialised and, and sort of on an sanitised. Preying on the most vulnerable people. It, sure. it is. But it's also been, I mean, it outsells by a factor of 10 any straight food book. So if you write a food book that has some diet promise on it, it will sell ten times as many. So it's a cynical money-making... No, it's not a cynical money-making thing. It's what people want. Publishers aren't sitting in small dark rooms deciding how they're going to corrupt the young women of the country. <laughs> the young women of the country will buy a book that says you can be thin in five days. And it's about uh, thinness uh, more than health, would you say? I think we've got The two have become so intertwined. I think that's the problem. No, no, I, I think the actual thing is control. If you look into the psychology of eating disorders, etc., a lot of it is about control. And actually, for a long time, we put our control in the area of weight. That became very dangerous, very unpleasant, not something you could really talk about with your chums. So instead, we talk about these weird, numinous new things we have of well-being. Now, well-being is something that you can control the hell out of without anybody calling you an anorexic. And you have the same level of functional control going on. Mm. But it's not in, in that sort of supposedly unhealthy way. It's about healthiness. Regular food and recipe books, I think we imagine that most people will cook one recipe out of each one. I don't know how many anybody's ever going to cook out of a book on bone broth. Almost guaranteed to be zero. <laughs> are there any of these diets that you think are actually quite good? Gosh, I'm probably the last person in the world that anybody should go to for dietary advice. But actually, <laughs> I don't think... Any People go to you for dietary advice every week in the, in the magazine. <laughs> what are you that's, saying? That's, that's where to go and get that. Uh, our bodies are these fantastic mechanisms of homeostasis. They are designed with to keep you as you are at almost any cost. So if you go out and it's cold, your body will make you warm. If it's warm, your body will make you cold. It will keep you, it will do everything it can to keep you within a couple of grams of the previous weight and the previous level of fat that you were. And to change that, you can't really change your input except in a gigantic way of starving yourself or overfeeding yourself. So actually, it's a lot more to do with lifestyle change. But the lifestyle change is a lot more difficult to do and it's a lot more difficult to control. And you can't actually put it on the cover of a book or a magazine article in a way that will immediately attract attract attention. Okay, so many of our listeners will be about to hit the beach. What is uh, <laughs> Tim Hayward's, uh, di the FT's dietitian, uh, recommend that they do in order to look beach fit? <laughs> beach ready. <laughs> I have never been asked for advice on beach body before. Uh, I, I, honestly, my best way of getting a beach body would be to buy a boiler suit. Excellent. And uh, and and just gosh, I'm, it literally never ever crosses my mind. I think once you can get over the humiliation of actually having any part of your body naked in front of any other people for judgment, <laughs> it, and once you're in that 
area, then the, then the, the distinctions between whether it's fat or it's thin is just, it's just not an issue. My wife has a very interesting attitude to this. She says, I'll really get worried the day you have a stalker that's less than 20 stone. And, and, and I, I don't think I'm ever going to get chased disturbingly down the beach by women howling for my body, or men indeed howling for my body, which would be just as lovely. So, so in fact, I, I just literally, it doesn't even cross my mind. Now, I, I find I, actually, it very I'd, difficult to believe, Tim. I'd like to eat on a beach. You know, I'd love to yeah. sit on a beach in Positano somewhere and have somebody bring me plates nice. of pasta. That kind of thing I can really do. I'd rather, much rather do that than swim in the sea or lie in the sand. But. Well, me too. <laughs> uh, Tim, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. I personally think kombucha is disgusting. <laughs> <Fine. laughs> oh. So, Chris, you've met up with Cornelia Parker. Yes, Cornelia Parker, our listeners may know from some of her most famous installations. She collaborated with the British Army to blow up her own garden shed. Um, It's quite an amazing site. Well, so one of the kind of themes of her work is about transformation, sort of turning the very ordinary domestic everyday into something new and strange and making us look at things again and completely broken and unusable um she also drove a steamroller over lots of silverware and over a brass band so literally squeezing the air completely out of these instruments making them something completely different and destroying them she likes she likes breaking things there's definitely an element of destruction in her work yeah and isn't there a connection with tilda swinton There is. Um, Tilda Swinton went to sleep in a glass box back in 1995 for a work called The Maybe. Um, And did she fall asleep? And she was asleep, apparently. I mean, I wasn't there, but apparently... Like a whole night or... During the day, I think she slept and and visitors to the gallery just sort of observed her almost in this kind of fish tank. Upright, was she? She was lying down asleep in a glass box, you know, looking quite sort of ethereal and beautiful as she does, but... It was rather beautiful. I mean, I can Cor- imagine. Cornelia Parker's quite good at these very striking images. I saw her work on the roof of the Metropolitan Museum in New York a couple of years ago. She made what she calls her psycho barn, which she will speak about in the interview. Great. Well, let's listen. Your work often starts with objects that you find. Can you tell me where you find them? Um, all kinds of places. You know, some of them are abandoned, I find on the street. Some of them I, I get from antique markets or from car boot sales or flea markets or friends give them to me. The artist Bob and Roberta Smith has described you as an elegant hoarder. Would you say that's true? Do you take that as a compliment? Anything with the word elegant in is good. <laughs> yeah, I hoard, but I also get rid of a lot of stuff. <laughs> and also I hoard tiny things, little microscopic bits of, like a little fragment of Hans Christian Andersen's blotting paper, for example. And I thought it could have possibly blotted the princess and the pea or the emperor's <laughs> new clothes. And somehow it seemed a very charged little tiny bit of paper. And I've got lots of things I've picked up over the years that I think might be useful and suddenly they might get activated. When they get activated, what happens to them? Well, um, you know, for example, you know, when I started making some prints two or three years ago for Alan Christea, I had been collecting glass for a long time and I made previously made silver pieces and I started collecting silver plated objects mm. before I knew what I was going to do with them. So sometimes I have a hunch about what I might, I get drawn to things and then they start to build up a collection and then suddenly something comes to mind and, and something materialises. Mm. So you're drawn to a certain the properties of a certain material, be it silver or glass? Well, obviously glass has got this fragility, which I like, and I made a piece of work 
I think it was in the early 90s, called One Day's Glass Will Break, which was a stack of glasses which I had engraved with the words, you know, a single word on each glass. It's like an object poem mm. and stacked them up so it said One Day's Glass Will Break, a sort of a teetering tower. And then when I was making the prints for Christea, the idea of using glass again because of its fragility. But then I wanted to capture this moment of things falling, mm. which mm. I could do in print, not necessarily in sculpture. Yeah, so One Day This Glass Will Break is also the, the title of your exhibition, which is touring. And it seemed to me that in, in this series of prints, you're coming back to some of the names of your old series yeah. and old works, but also using similar objects in a, w- in a way, but in yeah, a different way. I think, think I come back quite often to somewhere mm. where I was several years ago, just because several years ago I was rushing through like a mad thing. <laughs> and now I'm a bit older. It's almost like a spiral. I come mm. back to the same place, but from a different perspective. Yeah. And then I sort of need to see potential in things. I just made one work and then moved swiftly on. So I'm now sort of seeing it from a different angle. When you say you were rushing, do you feel that you've since slowed down? Um, sadly not. <laughs> um, I think, say, 20 or 30 years ago, when I was much younger, obviously, there was a, a need to sort of try lots of different things out. So I mm. was, you know, used a material and moved on to a different material. Now I realise I left a lot of things undeveloped. I was only interested in the high street, not the little the side streets. And now <laughs> I'm, I'm looking down the side streets because mm. I, I realise there's a lot of richness in those side streets. And they're quieter, perhaps. They're quieter, more contemplative, more about mortality. As you get older, that spectre sort of looms larger. You know, more people have died. <laughs> and you know the fragility of life. And one day's glass will break, will can mean all kinds of things, really. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about your experiments with the photogravure? Photogravure. Yeah, I've always loved Fox Talbot, one of the pioneers of photography. And mm. I, I visited Laycock Abbey years ago. And the excitement of those very first photographs, you know, and him making sort of sun prints like photograms by laying two-dimensional objects like pieces of lace and leaves onto photosensitive paper and leaving them out in the sun. Mm. Also, he was a failed artist. He was always trying to, you know, he couldn't draw and he was using the camera obscura and wanting to fix the image. Mm. And in a way, I'm trying to fix the image in a way. So tell me about your process. It's a kind of printing photography hybrid. Yeah, so I had made photograms in the, the dark room mm. but I always felt frustrated, you know, everything's in reverse, it's, it's got its limitations and um, when I was playing around in a print studio and I'd tried all these different, you know, photo etching and all kinds of things and then I decided to do what I'd been doing as a photo etching on a photogravure plate and so I said to Pete Kosovic, who's the, the printer, what happens if I put this giant light bulb on, on this plate and we expose it to light and, mm. then, and then this beautiful positive image appeared and where the bulb hit the plate, you yes. got it, it was sharp in focus and the rest mm. of it was out of focus. Mm. So part of it was reality and part of it was shadow and I like that. So if you put a, a glass on a plate, you get the underside of the, the glass, which is in sharp focus, but everything else is far away. And so printmaking, it seems to be something that you've adopted later, more recently. Yeah, I don't, I've made a few over the years. With, when I was a student, I made some prints. What I like about it, A, it's quite democratic, so it's much more affordable, and it's you can move through ideas very quickly and almost as quickly as you can think I was realizing I can make prints and I'm going to do some prints tomorrow (laughs) I phoned up Pete and I said what happens (laughs) 
if I get a, a goldfish in a plastic bag like you get at the fair huh. and I try to make a photogravure of that and the fish will move around and it will record its movement over mm. five minutes of exposure. So that could be quite an exciting thing. It might be the first photogravure of a living thing. Well, I wonder, I mean, when you ask him questions like that, has, does he often say, I don't know, let's see what Well, happens. no, he, he doesn't know, but he, he's very excited. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I said, have you got any ethical concerns <laughs> about exposing this poor fish to UV light? And he said, because I'm sure it won't mm. harm it, but he's a very willing partner in crime. Mm. I mean, this kind of experimentation and creativity, did you have a very creative upbringing? Was it something you were, were you making things? Well, I was brought up in the countryside and I'm obviously mud pies were my earliest sculpture <laughs> and making tree houses. You know, we had a small holding and actually I spent a lot of time just working, planting mm. vegetables, helping my father milk cows, you know, playing was a bit of a luxury. So I mm. would have to sneak off and, you know, go down the fields and, and that's when I would play. And so play is still a, a guilty mm. pleasure. So I obviously trying to make the work as playful as I can get. Was there a moment where you, you knew I wanted to be an artist? Um, I think it was around 15. Um, I went to, to London with my art teachers and we stayed for a week in a cheap hotel. It cost £14 for the week because <laughs> I earned the money <laughs> myself. And um, we went around all the museums. It just seemed so exciting. Mm. I'd never been to a museum before. And I thought, oh, the potential of this is amazing. Mm. All the different kinds of art you can make. So it was a very liberating thing. And what did your parents make of your choice to be an artist? Was that a difficult thing for them? They were quite baffled, but I don't know if they had such big hopes for me. You know, they, my elder sister was the academic one and I was the, the one that always just squeezed through. They were just worried that I hadn't got a proper job because mm. I was always been freelance artist. So that was puzzling to them. They're both dead now, but they did see me being nominated for the Turner Prize and... Mm. And they came to see the show in London. I remember my father sort of positioning himself at the entries to my space and said, "What?" You know, asking people, what do you think of this then? <laughs> you know, Vox popping all these poor <laughs> poor art goers, you know, because he thought it was all kind of beyond his ken or whatever. Mm. But that's fine. I didn't need their approval. I mean, your work's been described by some people as having a darkness and a latent violence. Do you see that in it? Oh, yeah. I think life is like that. We all have fears and I feel like I want to make work that has a whole vocabulary and not just mm. aesthetic and it's just inherent really I the dark side is there wherever I like it or not so I embrace it and the violence I mean I think I would also call it friction I mean the world is full of friction even traditional sculpture is violent you know you think of a, a hammer and chisel chipping away at a piece of stone or forging of metal you know it's it's physical brute force it's the process as well if you're steamrollering over beautiful bits of silver <laughs> exploding a shed I mean which well I quite yeah for. but I like I think it's it's a trope you know mm. it's a, I like the cliche value of it and it's got that tragicomic feeling to the the steamroller because it's been used in cartoons to you know it's kind of Tom and Jerry yes but also you know the customs and excise use it you know it's, it's kind of a curious thing mm. you know to be visibly getting rid of something mm. things being thrown off cliffs the white cliffs which figure greatly in even Shakespeare's plays so I quite like using these mm. famous landmarks and you know, if I could drop something off the Empire State Building, I, I would, but <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed to. <laughs> Getting the permission for that. <laughs> so what is it about the cultural cliché exactly? I mean, thinking of your psycho house. Oh, the psycho barn, yeah. On, psycho on barn, yeah, the, the Met. Um, the Met. Well, I think the psycho house is a cliché and also the red barn is a cliché. The red barn is a kind of 
from European red barns coming from Scandinavia and Germany and, and Amsterdam and Holland and going to America and mutating into this symbol of wholesomeness. The origin of the red colour comes from mixing animal blood with oh, uh, right. linseed oil and, or rust. And so there's a kind of curious backstory to it. Well, it's that sort of latent violence, isn't it? Yeah, but, I mean, well, it's the practicality of it too. But So they have these red barns. And then there's a psycho house created by Hitchcock and he'd come from Europe and he brought with his love of, you know, film noir and German expressionism and his own dark <laughs> psychology. Mm. And he created this psycho house based on, you know, the house by the railroad yeah. by Edward Hopper. So it's at the same angle mm. in the painting. There's a, a railway track and you feel like you're looking at it from perhaps a train. And, and in the psycho house, you've got it on the hill with the long motel in front of it, which is about the car. Mm-hmm. And that's a black and white film. So I thought if I make the psycho house out of the red barn, then we'll have this red <laughs> psycho mm. house. And it became a psycho barn. The original set was just too flat. It was all propped up from behind. You can only see it from one angle. I, I saw it in New York and walked around the back. And, and it's all propped up with the, the So it's a facade. Mm. And the, the one in the film is two. It's two-thirds scale and you see the Manhattan skyline behind it which you can look out and see all these sites where films were made from yeah. Ghostbusters to you know Rosemary's Baby you know mm. you, so the American skyline is full of this but it would have been New Amsterdam also Central Park used to be full of shanty town and Hooversville they called it where all these homeless people used to live in oh, Central Park mm. because of the depression so there's a kind of curiosity also in Manhattan on all the rooftops, there's lots of scaffoldings propping up signs, but the signs are pointing to the street. But this was a, you can see the back of it from mm. below. And that's actually coming to the Royal Academy. Oh. And it'll be here in September. So watch this space. <laughs> it will look very different in the courtyard. Mm. And the piece was, is called Transitional Object Psychobarn, in brackets. And the transitional object is the object that weans you off your mother, you know, mm. like the teddy bear or mm. the blanket. And because the psycho house was all about. You know, Norman Bates becoming yeah. his mother yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and who is the mother you know mm. his mother Europe Britain you know the whole political thing that's happening I made the piece that it was the backdrop of the Trump Clinton mm. electoral campaign and the people who built the psycho barn were showmen who made all the sets for all the TV debates between oh, okay. Clinton and Trump mm. somehow that got woven into it as well yeah. And you followed our recent election as the official election oh, artist. I mean, what, what was that like as a, as a job? Well, it was kind of, I mean, I think I was so immersed, say, in American politics. And then and then we had Brexit and as well. And I felt like I was consuming the news all the time and, mm. and feeling quite sickened by it. And then when they invited me to be the election artist, I thought, well, I might as well embrace it and, <laughs> and, and make it the material of my work. Mm. So I became almost part of the press pack, but I was responding to it in a very different way. I mean, I never did social media before then, but I started doing Instagram and the images I were taking were just photographs of anything and mm. it, and they could have a political angle if you just put a caption beside it. And then I made a little film out of the Instagram and I made a bigger film in the House of Commons using a drone. <laughs> Left, right and centre, which has this amazing... I mean, the, the newspapers sort of animated, it looks like. I mean, yes. they've got a sort of life of their own as they rise up. Yes, because there's, yeah. so we filmed it over a weekend, obviously, when there's no MP sitting. Mm. Mm. But I put all the newspapers, the left-wing newspapers on one side and the right-wing on the other, and I put the FT in the middle. I know that. <laughs> that. I was pleased about that. I met Lionel Barber and I mentioned that. I said, oh, you were, you were the only newspaper I could put in the middle, and he was very pleased about that. And then this drone came in and, 
the fan from the drone whipped all the newspapers and turned yeah. it into this kind of slow motion hellhole. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was very filmic. I mean, going back to the idea of the cliche, it felt mm. like newspapers whipping around. There was something. Well, you know, you see them in films spinning. Oh, you know, yeah. I was trying to do that, <laughs> um, and it was filmed at night with the drone with a light on it, so it was very quiet and you, they didn't disturb the papers. But there's another cameraman filming the light playing over the newspapers, and then you see the drone for just like a ten seconds or something, and then you know it's a drone and then it comes back in daylight and wrecks havoc mm. and then flies out once the house of commons is covered in newspaper it flies off into darkness mm. and people say oh well, how did you respond to the election and <laughs> all i could say it was it was quite a big mess did it make you see politics or politicians themselves in a different way well you just realize they're all individuals for start and they they usually are mps because they care about things but there's so much game playing and it's all a facade as well i mean i think it made me quite <laughs> um drained you know I, I found after that i couldn't really <laughs> couldn't watch the news or read newspapers for a while I, i'd almost mm. sickened myself i'd almost gorged on it and in the end it was quite you know i had to change tack and do something else I don't know how the newsreaders cope with... I remember talking to Jon Snow and saying, how can you cope mm. with reading the news every night and you know, usually quite depressing news mm. and then go home and be happy? What did he say? <laughs> well, he said you just leave it at the door. Um, Do you uh, have to have a certain detachment yeah, emotionally? Yeah, I think so. I mean, but I somehow wasn't having that emotional detachment. I was being very porous because that's what you are as an artist, and all I am. And so I was absorbing all this stuff and I was, I was almost... Mm. choking on it. Do you think you can be emotionally detached and be an artist? No. Well, it depends. <laughs> there is, there is um, emotionally detached kind of art. It depends on the person. You know, If the person's an emotionally detached person, then the work will be that. So I think it's to do with what you are as a person. It just gets amplified. And then it's all about almost like a, a visual model of your thought processes. You leave this thing behind and then it's got its own life. And people can project onto it what they want you know i was really pleased with a lot of the policemen i had the films on in westminster hall and some of the policemen was machine guns were going in there and watching it <laughs> and you know bringing their own whatever their political bent was they mm. would think of it through that lens so i thought the left right and center you know i had to be unbiased which is impossible yeah but i thought left right and center summed it up really thinking about the art world do you think um you saw money sort of pouring into it in the 90s and the landscape changing how did that feel to be an artist at that time when suddenly artists were sort of like these superstars well it's very weird for artists really because we were all making the work for all kinds of reasons but mm. um, <laughs> I started making uh, bullet drawings <laughs> drawings made out of bullets drawn mm. into wire mm. and I thought well perhaps arms dealers would buy those yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I've gone into, I've gone into but you know I quite I quite embraced the idea of the 30 pieces of silver you know this betrayal for money you know that somehow Judas's betrayal yeah so um, but I quite liked playing with that and I think whatever the system is I play with the, the system back in the 80s you were living in East London in what sounds like a kind of bohemian household. <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't lots of money in art and presumably lots of money for materials. Did you have to be quite resourceful? resourceful? Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, I remember my budget for my exploded shed was £250. 
Well, and I just turned down a corporate commission for £20,000 to do my exploded shed, which I got a, a £250 fee for doing in a public space, which was Chisholm Hill Gallery, yeah. because I wasn't overly interested in mm. money. And, you know, the 30 pieces of silver, the steam old piece, that was £500 I got. <laughs> and I, I spent it all in, in, you know, going buying all this cheap silver plate. And then I did a piece called Matter and What It Means, which... Again, the budget was £500, so I took the money in 10 pence pieces and put it in a railway track and mm. <laughs> the train ran off. And then I used the money suspended on wires as in the form of two figures. It was called matter and what it means. Mm. So I quite liked that playing around with the idea of money and worth. I like the fact you can make sculpture on the... From things which would otherwise be discarded. Yeah, so, I mean, my husband's a painter, you know, and you... He might spend a lot more money than I on materials just because if he's going to use canvas or whatever. Um, but I quite like that, that you can find a bit of old board in the street and make a mm. sculpture out of it. And you weren't represented by a gallery until relatively late on. Did you sort of resist representation? Um, did I did. That? I didn't. I wasn't interested because the lot of the galleries approached me I didn't like. And, and I think in Britain... There wasn't too many galleries that would deal with the kind of work I was making. You know, there might have been American galleries that could. Mm. But it was only when I got nominated for the Turner Prize when I was 40 years old that I got represented by Frist Street, who I am still with. And they were the sort of the least commercial gallery, <laughs> you know. And so you wanted the freedom that that brought Yes, you. I think you have to be careful, you know, that what you wish for, if you take it on by a big gallery, there might be the circuit of all the art fairs they go to in you know, all the private collectors, and you might just be on this conveyor belt that you can't get off. I choose carefully, really. And large-scale works, I only want them really to go to public collections because private collectors might buy a big piece and get bored of it two or three years and stick it in the auction, and my my work's too fragile for that. It has Mm. to be, you know, the exploded shed and the 30 pieces of silver, they went to the Tate, and I know they'll look after them and they'll be there. But, you know, my exposure shed, I could have sold it many times over because I sold that piece to the Tate myself because <laughs> I hadn't got a gallery right. and uh, for very little money. You know, I'd been offered large amounts of money by private collectors who had warehouses in America. and uh, mm. But it, so, somehow I knew that if that happened, that it would only be seen by a few people. Mm. And does it matter to you that the work is seen by people who could never think of a being able to afford a piece of art but would like to yeah. wander into Tate. Yeah, so I think it's there for the public. It's, you know, open access and that's and the tape's free and museums are free, which is brilliant. For me, as somebody who did who came from a working class background and mm. and what museums museums I visited triggered for me, I'd like that, you know, that our galleries should have healthy amounts of good art for the public to look at. And I think even something like Piero Manzoni, for example, who who inflated balloons and, and called it breath of an artist, and now they're just little perished bits of rubber. <laughs> and But somebody's collected those mm. and, you know, donated them to museums. So I realise that private collectors also are custodians of work. And I mean, I've got over all that silly uh, <laughs> uh, innocence of idealism about not wanting to be represented and not wanting somebody to own my work you know that was something that I shed at the age of 40 (laughs) it took me a long time to grow up would you like your work to be popular would you like people to like it 
I don't mind. I really don't mind. I mean, I've just made, <laughs> I've just made a very idiosyncratic fountain in Friesland in a little town called Workham. There's um, eleven towns in in Friesland have been made European city of culture, and they've got an international artist for each of the towns to make a fountain. And for some reason, my fountain, which is, <laughs> I took these two heraldic lions that are on this building, very sort of primitive looking lions holding up the coat of arms, done by somebody from the town in 1650 and I've taken them off and blown them up really big and made them double-sided and they've been worked on by a local sculptor and they're spurting water from their paws and they're called the rampant lions of Workham you know the people mm. who Workham can stand or they can see Workham framed they've still got to be finished off a bit and the bases have still got to be carved but I went there a few days ago and it's divided the town right. <laughs> so half of the town that's all they talk about because it's the, the new yeah. thing in the town yeah. an artist from the town of Workham who thought that the artist should come from the place he's made his alternative fountain which is lots of penises squirting <laughs> water which I don't he said my work was nothing to do with work and what's it to do with work and I, I thought well what's his piece got to do with work <laughs> um, but it's caused a lot of controversy so sometimes a seemingly benign thing can cause polarisation you know I wrapped up Rodin's The Kiss with String you know mm. a lot of people were upset and said I vandalised Rodin and other people thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition um, you didn't mind the people I don't mind I don't mind. I, I mean, if I'm prepared to take praise, I should be also prepared to take the opposite. So in the end, some of the better responses is when you have the somebody hates it or loves it, you know, that Marmite moment. And that's happening in a little town in Friesland at the moment, which I think is so hilarious. I go in the shops and they go, oh, you, the artists have been causing all these problems. <laughs> Cornelia Parker's exhibition, One Day This Glass Will Break, will be on at the Mac from the 7th of July and touring the country after that. And you can read all of Tim Hayward's restaurant reviews at ft.com. We'd love to hear from you on Facebook or by email, everything else at ft.com. And if you like what you hear, please do leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts. We've been Grizz and Al. And our music is composed and produced by Fatum. 